Well, how many of you went home last week and tried to find the man from Snowy River to watch it? Oh, really? None of you? Oh, okay, two people. Thank you. Did you find it? Isn't it awesome? I'm just telling you, one of the best movies ever made and a great storyline. I know some of you want to. You just forgot. Sorry. Well, last week we studied the first eight verses of Mark 1. Today we're going to examine the verses 9 through 13 of chapter 1. So if you want to turn your Bibles there to Mark chapter 1. The baptism and temptation of Jesus. From time to time we'll pass over a few of the portions of Texas to concentrate on Jesus' Galilean ministry as we're going through the book of Mark. However, in the beginning we're going to look over these important key verses as we really get into the book of Mark. And for the most part, I'm going to follow portions of uh, the outline found in the book of Mark, I'm sorry, the Christian Standard Study Bible. And uh, let me just encourage you that uh, if you want a good study Bible, it's a good one. It has a lot of notes uh, and tons of maps and really brings some of the the portions of Scripture alive. And uh, so I encourage you, um, if you want, that's a good study Bible, I can direct you where to find one. But as we get started, I'm going to break down several of the phrases found in the text. And you may not see it at first, but as we go through these key phrases, you're going to see some significant parallels in the storyline of what has taken place. As you remember, as we talked about those first eight verses, and we talked about a storyline that runs through. And now every good story pulls you into it. And you want to be a part of it. And last week's storyline, we see Jesus Christ beginning to share the gospel as he begins his earthly ministry. And so this morning we're going to concentrate on the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and uh, looking at some key phrases in this text of Scripture. Just for a moment, let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on the Word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for the opportunity to be here once again, Lord, that we have, Lord, this freedom that we're so thankful for to study Your Word and ask God that You would speak to our hearts. Lord, may Your Holy Spirit... Uh, Lord, enlighten us, Lord, to learn what you'd have for us to learn, be reminded of those things that maybe we have once learned and not practiced or, or, or remembered, but ask God that your will would be accomplished through the preaching of your word, and ask God that you would uh, work in all of our hearts this morning, and I pray you begin with mine, give me clarity of thought and speech, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The baptism of Jesus, and if you would, follow along as I begin reading in verses 9 through fall and following. And uh, let me just say also, for those of you that may be coming in, there is a stack of Christian Standard Bibles on the, on the back there. If you need one, feel free to take it. Uh, when we run out, we'll put a few more there. Um, that way you can be on the same text if you're interested. So the baptism of Jesus, right away in verses 9 through 11, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and the angels were serving him. And you'll notice in this text of Scripture that it is not as detailed, it is not as uh, long as some of the other gospel message uh, accounts of this passage of scripture. But I want to break down some of these key phrases to help us understand. The first phrase I want to break down this morning is, in those days, found in verse 9. What is the significance of those days? Well, it's an interesting statement. Some of your transla- translations may say, at this time. 
But John Phillips appropriately describes this phrase. He said, in all those days since Adam, we, we look for a perfect man, one who was able to stare back into the sleepless eye and dare fallen Lucifer himself to come and do battle with him. So it was in those days of which Mark speaks had arrived. And I love how he puts that. Someone who is willing to stare back into the sleepless eyes and dare fallen Lucifer. Think about that minute. It is a battle. And uh, here he is coming to earth. And, and just think about this for a moment. And he's in this, in um, possibly his 30th year of life. He's in his last years of ministry here. He's beginning his last final years of earth, but his first years of ministry. And here he is willing to do battle with Lucifer. Uh, to accomplish the purposes for which he came to this earth. The story, the message of the gospel, it begins. When we say at this time that Isaiah had talked about, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it states, When the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, when you think about it, Jesus really did grow up in relative anonymity as a child. As a child, you don't read a whole lot about his life. God's Word doesn't give us a whole lot. He really was really clothed in, in anonymity quite a bit. They knew of him. Uh, there were those that followed him, but he became obscure during those middle years. And so here he is, now God's appointed time to redeem those under the law. And Jesus grew up this way. And John the Baptist preached the repentance and the coming of the awaited Savior. But notice where Jesus had come from. We'll read this once again in the text. In those days, those days that Isaiah had prayed for, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. What was it like in those days to be from Nazareth in Galilee? Well, it's interesting, and this is something I really learned fresh and anew this week. Uh, there was much contempt for those who resided in or from Galilee, especially in rabbinical circles. It was noted that the Galileans were easily noticed for their dialect. It was something that was not favored. It was something that was not looked upon as, oh, I'd like to be from them. Uh, we oftentimes, we look at people from different parts of the United States and say, man, where are they from? They kind of stand out uh, because of, their, uh, of the place of origin and so forth. The Galileans had this kind of a reputation. Uh, so they were easily noted for their dialect, oftentimes for their lack of grammatical skills and often their mispronunciation of words. So here you have Jesus coming up, growing up in these circles from Nazareth. What do you think the public thought of someone coming from Nazareth? Uh, as for those from Nazareth, uh, the Jews derided them because they were thought to be irreligious and thought to have a lack of good morals. And furthermore, people of Nazareth were to thought, thought to have a mongrel character and rough dialect, and the people of Nazareth were despised. I remember in John chapter 1, verse 46, when Nathaniel was talking with Philip, and do you remember the question that Nathaniel asked Philip? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know, for the first time, I kind of put these thoughts together. And I remember thinking as I was studying this, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Why would somebody say that? Because of the reputation and the character of those coming out of Nazareth. So here you have Jesus Christ coming out of Nazareth to begin his earthly ministry among the area of Galilee. And people were looking at him as, wow, Jesus? 
from Nazareth? Despised because of where he came from. But it should be brought to our attention, though, that Jesus did not mind that he came from such a place as Nazareth. Jesus was the epitome of humility. It mattered not at all Jesus, that Jesus came from such places as Nazareth Galilee. Much of Jesus' greatest ministry and miracles took place in the area of Galilee. And in those days, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John. It's interesting, once again, to note here, it says, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. So I love, once again, how John Phillips phrases this statement. Jesus came from a despised town, from a despised province, to a despised river. So what do you mean by that? Well, what do we know about the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized? And once again, when you think of the background from which Jesus came, and remember, think about this, he was not born in a pretty little hospital bed, born in a rough manger, in a barn most likely, and not so much a nice place. And then having come from the area of Galilee, despised for various reasons, people come out of there with a reputation, and now he's going to be baptized not in a clean river, but in a Jordan River. Well, how do I know this? In 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, you may recount the story of Naaman. Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your skin will be restored, and you will be clean. I mean, Naaman, Naaman was so excited to jump down into the, into the Jordan River, right? I mean, this is a clean river. I can remember, it's one of the few stories I remember the Baxter family teaching me when I was in preschool at my home church. And I can remember them demonstrating what it would have been like to jump into the Jordan River. And I remember them painting their, their arms all, all dark at, you know, to give the idea that it was a dirty river. In fact, verse 11 of the text there in 2 Kings chapter 5 says, But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was, I was telling myself, he will surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. I mean, here he is, Naaman here, he's about to be healed of his leprosy and he gets angry because he'd rather rather than jump in this dirty rotten jordan river he'd rather jesus wave his hands and it all be healed but you know what we find out in life is that jesus doesn't always work the way we want him to work anybody ever realize that yet that jesus works in different ways than what we would expect or imagine and that's pretty awesome really but look what happens in the following verse verse 12 Aren't Abana and Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? No, you couldn't. But the idea here is that the Jordan was not a very clean river. It wasn't one to be desired to go swimming in. So he turned and left in rage. And this is the very place that Jesus was baptized. So once again, from a despised town, from a despised province, into a despised river. So also Jesus was baptized by John. It tells us there again in verse 9. Jesus was baptized by John. We know that John the Baptist did not really want to baptize Jesus. John would have much rather been baptized by Jesus himself rather than to do the baptizing. Uh, but remember what was said of John in Mark chapter 1, verse 7? He didn't really want to do it. He says, There is a man coming after me who is preferred before me, whose sandals I am not worthy to unloose. You see the humility of John. The very fact that he was not wanting to baptize Jesus. He felt very much unworthy. 
But Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 states, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. I love how Jesus stepped into the dirty waters of the Jordan River to publicly identify with the ruined race he came to save. In that humility, in that love, in that sacrifice, that he'd be willing to step into the dirty waters of the Jordan River to publicly identify with the human race he came to save. As a reminder, just as a side note, as I say often, it tells us in this passage that Jesus came up out of the water. And the phrase further supports the practice of baptism by immersion, as I remind you guys often of. But as Jesus was baptized in his humility by John the Baptist, Next comes a vision in the voice we read of in verse 10. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The vision and the voice. First of all, the vision, he saw the heavens being torn apart. And quite, often, quite possibly this is the answer to Isaiah's prayer that we read of in Isaiah 64.1 where he prays that God would tear the heavens open and come down. Why? So that the people would see the amazing and fearful power of Jesus. And can I just say how we need to see this again and again. Oftentimes we forget that we serve the same God today that we read of in the Bible years ago. We forget that. Oh, we could ask the question, is there anything that God cannot do? And we would say what? Of course not. God is all-powerful. God can do anything that He chooses to do. He's God. But yet we forget in our day-to-day -day living that we serve that same God that we read about in the Bible. I am so excited that uh, I think sometime in the end of October, I have a pastor friend coming up from Indianapolis. And he's going to be sharing with us some things that God is doing in his midst. And I'm just sitting there dumbfounded and amazed at what God is doing. I'm just there, and he's telling me story after story after story after story of things that God is doing. And I'm sitting there thinking the whole time he's telling me a story, I've got to get him up here. I've got to let people hear that God is still at work, that God is still on the throne, that he's still answering prayer. And over and over, million, over probably over several million dollars at this point. It just since last November, that God has miraculously provided through various people and means in ways that you would have never imagined because Jesus doesn't always work the way that we expect him to. And I can't wait for him to come and share. And he was talking to me on the phone about a week and a half ago, and he says, you know, he says, by the time I get there, every story I've told you is going to be all old news. He says, God is still doing things. And the phrase that they've come to adopt around the ministry is, let's just pray about it till Monday and see what God does. Can you imagine having that kind of faith? That the God that we read about who does all these miraculous things in the Bible is still on the throne today. And he's still at work in the hearts of those who trust that he will. And remember, let's be reminded of what tells us in Matthew chapter 13, that when Jesus went into his hometown, he did not many mighty works there. Not because he couldn't, not because he didn't have the power to, but because the people didn't expect him to. Let's expect God to do great things, amen? He has the ability, he has the power, but I think he also wants us to look to him to accomplish these things. And they're things that you and I cannot do on our own. 
So why did Isaiah pray that God would tear open the heavens and that he'd come down so that people could see the powerful works of God? And we need to see this again and again. Then the Spirit descends on Jesus. A lot of people want to make a lot of hype about the dove that comes down. He says, like a dove, the Spirit descended on Jesus. So the Spirit is there and He's preparing Him for the ministry that He's about to embark on. And But not only the vision, there's a voice here. A voice came from heaven, verse 11. It says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And later Jesus would demonstrate His desire to please His Father when He says in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, It was necessary for me to be about my Father's business. See, Jesus was never there doing His own thing. He was always about doing His Father's will. What an incredible example to us. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, Jesus uh, says, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I think that's why Jesus, or God the Father, as he spoke out, said, This is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased. Why? Because he's willing to do what his Father asked him to do. And it's not often that God speaks audibly. But this is one instance where God publicly displays His approval of His Son. And as Jesus comes up, comes up out of the waters of baptism, He prepares for His earthly ministry, but not before being tested by Satan. And let me just say this, and maybe some of you have experienced this. When you make a decision to follow God in obedience, oftentimes it is accompanied with trial and struggle and frustration. I, I, I've said it for years. I think Satan loves nothing more than to distract you from doing what God wants you to do. And if you're going to make a decision to follow God and be obedient in some area of ministry, you ought to expect the attacks of Satan to come. You really ought to. Satan doesn't want to see God's work move forward. So as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, you think, oh great, he's on this mountaintop experience. He's just baptized. And some of you have been there. But often on the mountaintop, what you're overlooking is the next valley you may be walking through. So we come into the temptation of Jesus in verses 12 and 13. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and the angels were serving him. Uh, Mark's account of Jesus' temptation is not as detailed as Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 4. So if you would take your Bibles and turn just for a moment in Matthew chapter 4. I want to read the first 11 verses there. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And remember, as we said in the introduction to this book, that Mark's approach really is to deal with Mark as a servant. He concentrates, concentrates on his Galilean ministry here. But in Matthew chapter 4, we get a little bit more of a detailed picture of what Jesus was facing in the wilderness. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give angels orders concerning you. 
and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Then Jesus told him, it is also written, uh, verse 8, eight. again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Now when you think about it, we don't read as, as much detail in the book of Mark as we do in the book of Matthew. But three, at least three obvious times, Satan begins to tempt Jesus, but in every circumstance, Jesus turns to the word. And it's more important to obey God than Satan. But you know, it was probably, most likely, the 40 days of fasting where he communed with his father that gave him the strength to overcome. And I think if we're going to have the strength to overcome, as Jesus did, we're going to have to be in communion with our Father. If we're going to have victory, we need to be with him. But we see also verse 11, Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. Why? When you resist the devil, God's word says he must what? Flee from you. Resist. Stay on focus. Stay charged in 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 the commitment that God has asked you to join him in. But notice a couple key phrases here in our text in Mark chapter 1. It says right away there in verse 12, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Immediately. Uh, Mark uses this word translated drove or or immediately went, uh, thrust into 11 times in the book to describe Jesus casting out demons. It is a very forceful word. He drove him into the wilderness. Why did the Spirit drive Jesus into the wilderness? It's an amazing thing to consider, but there are actually commentators who say, well, Jesus really didn't want to go into the wilderness. No, that's not the answer. I don't think my Jesus is afraid of anything or anyone. The idea behind it is that he was thrust into it because he realized the, uh, uh, the importance of it. He realized the... the uh, um, the forcefulness that he that he must attack Satan with. Mark doesn't use this word to give the impression that Jesus was in any way afraid or reluctant to confront Satan, but rather to demonstrate the intensity of the experience that he was about to face. Remember, I love it what Isaiah said, and as John Phillips described, somebody who would look look Lucifer in the face and say, "You're going to lose." He's not afraid. But notice also the number 40 used here in the text. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, reminds us of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. But here's the difference. Israel failed their test. Our Lord victoriously passed His. Where Israel lost their inheritance, Jesus could call people into a new spiritual inheritance. Also, the first Adam was tested in a beautiful garden and once again failed. And Jesus was tested in a dangerous wilderness and defeated Satan victoriously. Adam lost his dominion over creation because of his sin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. But in Christ, dominion was restored for all those who had placed their faith and trust in him. Hebrews 2. In fact, let me take a moment and read Hebrews chapter 2. I love this passage. Hebrews chapter 2. 
beginning with verse 6. He says, but someone, somewhere, has testified, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus. Made a lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. Crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriately that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, in Adam, dominion over creation was lost. But in Christ, dominion is restored for all those who would place their faith and trust in him. And in doing so, look at this back in Mark chapter 1. We see something else that happens here. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels were serving him. <laughs> Jesus demonstrates the future time of peace and righteousness that was to come when Jesus um, would come and establish his earthly kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, it says, They will not harm or destroy each other on, the, on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. That's an amazing thought to consider. My entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. There's going to be a day of teaching going on. And a day that people will know who Jesus is. Isaiah 35 verse 9 says, There will be no lion there, and no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. So meanwhile, Jesus was with wild animals, and yet they harmed him not. What a demonstration of his future peace that he'll bring. And yet his angels were serving him. We see here in conclusion as we read through this passage, though the Spirit compelled Jesus into the wilderness, it was not to see if Jesus was ready for his earthly ministry, but rather to prove his readiness and accomplish the purposes for which he came to earth. He was ready. He fought Satan and won. He came out victorious. And often valley experiences follow mountaintop experiences. Baptism might, may, uh, might be for, for many a mountaintop experience, but oftentimes we make great decisions for the Lord and we see Him at work there on the mountain. But then we face a valley. The temptation, if you will. The struggle, if you will. And whether you pass or fail the test, the temptation is dependent on your willingness to rest in the power of the Holy Spirit. In your own strength, we will certainly fail. We'll certainly fall. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, There's no temptation that has taken you, but such is common to man. But with that temptation, Jesus will what? Make a way of escape. He'll make a way of escape. And oftentimes... It's us who are not willing to do the hard thing. I've said for years that oftentimes a way of escape is simply saying no. 
I'm not going to do it. I think we need to come to the place where we are willing to say, you know what? As Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my master? Maybe we need to be like others who said, I will set no wicked thing before my eye. And make a, a, a resolution that we are going to live for God and God alone. And the only way to do that is to be filled with the Spirit. And resisting the devil, as it tells us in James, resist the devil and he what? Will flee from you. But if we give in, how can we expect anything other than defeat? We have to take our stand. And Jesus Christ here demonstrated, he exemplified what it means to walk with God, to walk in obedience, to submit himself. I mean, here he is, Jesus Christ, who would die on the cross and give his blood, humbling himself to be baptized in a dirty river. He exemplified obedience to his Father. And can I just say this also? If you haven't followed the Lord in believers' baptism, you should. You should take that opportunity and to publicly identify that I'm a child of God and I want to live for Him. And then knowing that as you're filled with the Spirit and you go forward, He'll give you the strength to fight the battles that come. But in and of yourself, you will fail. We all will. We need the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives as we see in the life of Jesus Christ. As soon as He came up out of the water, the Spirit descended upon Him enabling him to do the ministry and to conquer Satan, as he soon did. I don't know where you're at, but I know that we all need Jesus, and we need his Spirit to be fighting in us. He's a, if we know Jesus Christ, his Spirit indwells us, but we need to depend on him to fight the battles that we cannot fight. We'll fail in and of ourselves. Our flesh is weak. We need him. Lord Jesus, Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to see this passage of Scripture. Thank you for allowing us to see a portion of your humility. To come from such a despised place as Nazareth and Galilee. And other passages that talk about Capernaum. A place, a region that was not considered too fond to be from. A place where many were ridiculed. And yet you boldly wore the title Jesus of Nazareth. Coming down in the likeness of man. Being humbled to the point of death on a cross. Lord, thank you for your picture of humility and obedience. And I pray.